Hello. I'll be short here and quickly present you with a bonus episode of the How Might We podcast. So today's a conversation with David Ernst on the Liquid Futures podcast. David is the co-founder of Liquid.us, a liquid democracy platform in the US. So it was fun having this conversation. We covered loads of content from both my books, Democracy Squared and Tech Monopolies. We also discussed the role of changing education if we're going to improve our culture of democracy. And towards the end, we talk about some of the potential pitfalls of liquid democracy and how to mitigate against them quite practically. It was really fun for me to see how my views have shifted over the years, or rather how they've matured. Um, or maybe, maybe it's that the focus or the framing of them has changed somewhat. Um, so that was fun. Uh, I found myself wondering whether I still thought the, the things I used to think, uh, which is which is re a really refreshing feeling to have, actually, like a little like a little update. Um, so I think it's an engaging recording, and I hope you do too. Um, you can um, find out more about David's work on Liquid.us. Um, and so with no further ado, I'm going to give you my conversation with David Ernst for his Liquid Futures podcast. Enjoy. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Liquid Future. Today we're honored to have John Barnes as our guest. John Barnes is an author, thinker, democratic theorist, and applying democracy in companies as well. He has a broad range of work. I want to start by reading an excerpt from one of his books because it really struck me. John wrote, Scientifically, you can describe the world as chaotic, but the system that governs us is based on linear logic. Democracy in the Western world certainly hasn't changed for 300 years, really. But in the last 25, since the internet was invented, it's not changed at all. It's exactly the same as it was. You have a world that is scientifically chaotic against a system that is linear. That's what in engineering they call the law of requisite variety. A system that governs another system has to have at least the variety of the system it's governing. And there's something about this quote that really lays out the problem. It's just that the world has changed so much, and yet our systems have, our government systems are still based in this old logic. And I think, John, you speak to this better than almost anyone. So thank you for everyone you've been writing, and thanks for joining us today to talk deeper about this. Thanks, man. Happy to be here. Fun to chat. Where do you start? How do you, how do you first bring to someone's attention what the problem is? Mm. <laughs> I mean, the, the way I maybe the way I first bring first uh, really sort of came to it which which is like trump or brexit if you give people if you give people a, a practical example it tends to be quite clear or at least they they feel in, in through their real experience rather than just intellectually that things are things are like not quite right um so that's kind of the entry point that i go for me brexit brexit's a particularly interesting one because because where you might have been a a, a democrat or a republican in the past, uh, with Brexit, you know, it'll be far more nuanced or across parties, whether you were in or out in the first place, um, and, theref and therefore, 
uh, yeah, there's like less legacy there. But basically you find that, you know, it's a totally polarizing question. It's almost an aggressive question, actually. Are you in or are you out? It's like quite a, imagine if you were asking that uh, personally to someone, you know, it would feel it would feel quite an attack almost. So to do that uh, to a whole country turns out is just as equally divisive. Um, and so I, I kind of bring it from that point of view. But the, the main point I have is that it's, it's just a, a stupid question, uh, essentially. It's, it's far too simplistic to say you're in or out because the implications are so systemic and so wild that, uh, well, as I, d I don't know if you've been following in the UK, but you, you just need to follow the news around it to, to see that no one, no one knew what the implications were in the first place. So it's quite, it's quite easily just from that simple entry point to show that the system that's governing the system has nowhere near the variety as the system that it's governing um, because, of, because of binary questions like in or out, basically. So yeah, I think that's the entry point for me. And what would what would be a better way to do it? What does the alternative look like? Well, I mean, I, don't, I want to be careful not to just give a, a this is this is the solution yeah. because the the solution is something that needs testing many times over time, um, and and in fact should be constantly being tested. Um, I guess the the main thing I'm against is that the system that we currently have hasn't evolved uh, and and things not evolving simply isn't intelligent fundamentally uh, something that's intelligent evolves over time and the fact that democracy the, the the version of democracy we have hasn't evolved isn't intelligent so the 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 alternative is something that evolves on the on its most uh, on its most basic level um, now I'm always cautious nowadays to in the past, the, the rhetoric I've brought is that democracy is broken. Um, I do think that's true on many, many levels. But it's important to also realise that democracy has got us really far in a really short period of time. So if you were to ask people, how, um, when, when did democracy reach mass adoption? As in, like, when was most of the world run democratically? Most people would give you, give you answers in the order of hundreds of years. Um, but I think it's about 20, perhaps max, uh, that we've had 50% of the world governed, quote unquote, democratically. Um, yeah, the last 20 years, I believe, I think it might have been in um, in, in 09 or something like that. Um, but before that, the, the world was predominantly autocratic, or they call them uh, anocracies, which are, are like kind of blends of democracy and autocracy. Um, so democracy is a really new thing. And in that period of time, if you look at the last 100 years, I think we've got 90 more countries that we had uh, than we had. So, so the world is like insanely different. And the graph of democracy being adopted, let's, let's call it a technology, being adopted more and more over the last 100 years, maps on perfectly uh, with war decreasing over that time. So, 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 so democracy is an incredible peacekeeper. Um, so, and therefore, therefore, the conclusion I come to is it's got us really far. But now, now, but, but it's, it's been in beta testing mode, fundamentally. And now we need to like, start, start upgrading that, you know, when you have an app, you receive bug fixes to it on a regular basis. And we need bug, bug fixes for the version of democracy that we're running. And what's become very clear is that choosing this or that isn't that clever. Um, choosing for teams, um, 
plays to parts of our mind that that uh, that aren't aren't necessarily the most rational because we start playing identity politics, um, and like then misinformation can spread, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So so I think we we need to see that democracy the 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 result I guess the solution which I think what you were asking me originally is that it needs to be something that evolves and it's stopped evolving, um, and for me it'll need to be something that evolves towards genuinely understanding what people want given uh the given the right information that they've received and that's that's very far from being the case at the moment you know yeah so i want to dig into that a little deeper you have this excellent ted talk you do a really great job in it uh, you start with this evocative story with your talking about your grandmother i think that's one of the most um really poignant examples to bring in how much the world has changed and really personalize the story but identify that our systems of governance are, are really stagnant. So that was so kudos to you for that. But then in the second half of your talk, you're going into talking about solutions and you, you make this statement, we need to begin by, by figuring out what is the will of the people. And you're just alluding to this again, you need to figure out what people really want. And so I do want to dig into a little deeper, how, how do we do that? What, what does it even mean to know what people really want. Not, not necessarily in a philosophical question, sense, just in a logistical sense. How would we go about figuring out what people really want without asking them the reductionist question of are you in or are you out? Right, and I guess without also without asking the, the like, I can't remember, the, the old Henry Ford quote, you know, if I'd asked them what they wanted, they'd have said a faster horse um, kind of thing. Um, which I guess actually doesn't apply here because it's not like politicians have some great vision of the future, like the, like the car and that metaphor. You know, there's there's a total absence of vision in politics, so it's not uh, in a way actually that that kind of doesn't apply. Um, but I guess I don't know. Fundamentally, I think that um, uh, asking people what they want. If you, so, when you say logistically, do you mean literally in terms of the mechanics of the democracy that that does that? Well, let's say you had an unlimited budget. What would the interface from not necessarily digital, but just what are the individual citizens interacting with? Mm. How do I as an individual express to this democratic mechanism what I individually want? And how does that feed into the larger question of what does everyone want? What is this abstract concept of the people will? Right. Well, I mean, so let me take this from a couple of angles. Firstly, is I think it needs to start locally far more than it does. Uh, so maybe that's the second principle. If the first one I gave earlier is that this needs to be something that evolves. The second one is that it needs to come uh, from, from, it needs to be an emergent phenomena. Um, so a top down one being to ask a whole country this or that is, it, is a, a fundamentally dangerous question. It would be like saying, give me all of your wealth and do you want me to put it on red or black? Um, and, and that wouldn't be clever. What you'd probably do is you'd split your bet down across a load of different smaller bets um, and, and you'd benefit from resilience by, by doing that. So I think that that's a key principle and the way to do it that I can see best um, logistically, like you say, is probably to start at more local levels. So Switzerland, I think, is um, Nassim Taleb speaks well to this in Anti-Fragile about how... Um, how Switzerland, perhaps one of the reasons it's so resilient economically, um, other than having uh, many, many banks, 
um, and expensive watches is also that they make a lot more decisions at the local level. So there's a famous example of the heroin epidemic in Switzerland being counteracted by them finding really innovative local solutions. And then uh, when it worked locally, so I think the solution was to give methadone and therapy uh, over the counter. And so it put, all the, uh, it put all the drug dealers out of business. And then because that worked, they copy and pasted that, that piece of code, let's say, across the other cantons. And so that, that phenomenon is able to, able to scale, like the good meme spreads in that, in that instance. But it would be an utterly crazy concept to do that for a whole com country. So, so just, like, just like suddenly we vote and the whole country decides that the whole country is going to get methadone over the counter for free. That would just be such a, that would be a lunatic solution to solving heroin in a country. But piloting it at a local level gets you to check whether it's working or not. So logistically, I think that is one of the key things. It also allows for diversity. Um, you know, not all areas of a country are the same, um, which is, is quite clear. I mean, you're from the US, it's even more clear. Um, so I think that's perhaps a, a second principle. If the first one was evolving, the second one's probably that things need to be more emergent. Um, and a top-down catch-all is, is, not, is not the way to do that fundamentally. Okay, and so what is the role of a leader in in a healthier democracy? Because I, I think, I mean, I'm not an expert on Brexit, but my understanding was that the the question originally got put to the voters almost as like a almost as like a bluff, so to speak. Uh, was it David Cameron? Was like he yeah. didn't expect it to pass, and he was trying to prove <laughs> no. a point, right? And so then. After the vote did go in the direction of, of leave, to what extent, you know, the details aren't really fleshed out exactly as we've been talking about. It's a it's an extremely simple question. To what extent are the representatives, are the elected leaders, then uh, bound to the specifics versus to what extent can questions like that be used more as advisory and right. Right. So it seems like there's there's a, a real failure in in listening, I'd say, almost more than anything else. Yeah. So the, the, the three points that brings up in my mind, the first one's a question of leadership. The second one's about good questions. And the, the third one's about a culture of listening. So leadership, first of all, I just don't particularly see, uh, you know, if I think of David Cameron or Theresa May or, or whoever, I don't particularly see them as leaders other than. Uh, than, than bureaucrats fundamentally a leader being someone who somehow shares a vision of the future that is inspiring and interesting and makes makes me and the, and the whole group of people f want to follow them towards that flag that they've planted um, I, I, the only vision I can see that's there is the desire to be elected um, so it, it's a it's a self-interested vision fundamentally it's certainly not a democratic one um, so that sort of leadership, I just, I personally just don't think is is interesting in the future. I see the role of a bureaucrat in the future to be the role of a facilitator, whose whose job it is to be an amazing listener. The job of a facilitator is to help a group decide in small groups, and now we have technology to help groups decide in far larger groups. Um, as we've seen, like uh, I think V Taiwan is probably the best example where they merge in person facilitation as well as using an AI for, for large mass facilitation fundamentally. Um, and then the second role of a leader is exactly the one that I, I shared first, which is that you share an inspiring vision from the future. 
And that's just not coming from politics. Um, and it, and that happens all the time. You know, if you're into, I don't know, if you're inspired by, you'll be inspired by some, uh, some leader in the environmental movement that will make you want to run that way um, by sharing their vision. Um, and, and, uh, and those ideas will still catch. Um, ideas spread in cultures um, so, so fast that I, I think that that's what leadership can't end to that degree. So, so that's what leadership looks like in the future. The, the, the question of questions is a really interesting one because like a whole conversation comes or doesn't come from the question that's asked. So if you, you know, uh, I, did a, I did quite a lot of group facilitation. You never ask a group a closed question. If I say like, do you like Mexican food? Well, all that you've got there is yes or no as an answer. It's not really that, it's not really that interesting a question. Um, que questions that are, are more open yield totally different results, etc., etc. So there's many types of questions and the questions that are, fun that are, are typically asked in democratic or, or like in referendums, etc., typically not, not very well asked questions. The best tangible, um, uh, well, the best two examples I think that I've seen uh, that do this interestingly, one is the V Taiwan example where the, the question leads to so many subsequent commenting uh, and votes up and down that you actually end up with some interesting view on, on what people really think. Um, so that's quite a technologically driven um, answer. And the other one is my vote, I think, in, in Australia. Uh, the reason that's interesting is because what they're asking is to, to, based on all the information they give you, which of these possible destinations far in the future are you, do you want us to move towards? So what direction do you want us to go? And then it becomes the job of, of people in, in government to start helping us go towards those directions. So they're essentially, they're asking people, what direction do you want us to go in, broadly speaking? Um, and let's, let's take you there. And I, th I think that's, that's really valuable. And just so I can round out my, round out my last point, because you, you, your question sent me on so many tangents. Um, but I think the question of listening is, is exactly what all of this is about. Um, and the reason, I mean, we're all really bad at listening. I'm terrible at listening. Uh, I'm constantly told I'm an awful, awful listener. I'm trying really hard, but it, <laughs> it's a difficult thing to improve. But, uh, but to give myself a break, there's no surprise because when you're a kid, you sit down and you are forced to listen. So fundamentally, you're not, gonna, you're not listening in class all those years whilst you're like uh, passively receiving uh, you know, information, content from, a, from, a, from a, a leader. That's your image of a leader as a kid. It's the autocrat at the front of the class. Uh, and so, so fundamentally what happens is from a very young age, we're, we're there as passive spectators and our vision of a leader is the person at the front of the class. And there's just so many other ways to lead. Um, and so it's just quite easy to see how we as adults are products of that education system. Uh, where, where you can have models that are really different. You know, I've seen kids make decisions in groups and truly listen to each other and try and understand each other from a really young age. But these aren't skills that are, are driven into our culture. You know, these, these, are, these are problems that we're dealing with, but you, we tend to not deal with the root cause, which is that, that when, you were a kid, when you were a kid, listening wasn't actually a, that, that, that valuable a, a tool in your upbringing, you know. Okay. So just to bring it back, bring it back to your first point, you were saying that 
the way that we recognize that that there's a problem right now is because of Brexit and because of Trump. You know, that's one one symptom, let's say. Yeah, yeah. It's a way into the conversation. Yeah. So how would you respond to somebody that's excited about either of those two outcomes? Because, you know, you're, you're not a fan of them. I'm not a huge fan of either of them. But there are millions of people that did vote in that way. And so is there a sense in which suggesting there's, there's almost this like subtle argument of delegitimizing these outcomes that might even come across as not listening. Like, hey, we've, we voted to, to leave. We don't like Brussels. We don't like Hillary Clinton. We don't like the status quo. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, so, I mean, maybe just first of all, I'm not, um, I'm not saying that I'm for or against Trump or Brexit. I'm, for, uh, I'm against the process by which the decision is made. Um, you know, ha- if the decision had been remain... It was still a stupid question. Like, it, it, that, that doesn't change. Um, whether you voted for one or the other, what the question doesn't do is help you consider more deeply what this is about. Um, so so if, if whether you voted Hillary or, or Trump, uh, if you actually start breaking down the things that matter to you, uh, you're definitely... You're almost for sure going to have answers that come from either camp, and many of your best answers will come from neither Definitely. camp, which isn't an option on Definitely. the list. So, so the question just still still doesn't doesn't work fundamentally. Demagogue A or demagogue B, and that's B. my problem. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just just neither is going to have all the solutions to all of all of my my beliefs. Um, so we have a thing in England called vote for policy, um, which is. Mo- Little, little more than a game, but basically when it comes to the, um, the elections, this site gives you all of the policy decisions and you vote for them all. And then at the end it says, well, this is the party that most... So all, they're all anonymized, the, uh, the policies that have come from all the various parties. And then at the end it says, on balance, it seems like you would vote green or blue or orange or red you know and it might be it might not actually be the party that you typically vote for but the whole point is to show you that if you break this down it's not about parties um i equally don't necessarily think we should all be voting on policies um because that can be quite quite reductionist i think i think there's definitely an argument to say that policies are something for people in government to create but they should be created in order to get us closer to the direction in which we've chosen to go in in the first place, I think. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, regardless of who gets elected, I still I still just can't see how how this person's gonna gonna like represent my my point of view, particularly if they've not asked me for it in the first place. It's like saying I've got the answer before you even uh, I'm the answer to the question before I've even asked you the question. That's right. It, it, yeah, it, I just can't see how you can get to the right outcome of that. Well, and it's also our, our entire political song and dance is very ego driven. It's all about this personality or that personality or mm. maybe a third personality. But it's it's not about us as a community. I mean, only indirectly is it about like, what are we here for? What are our values? And they try to play that up. But but the marketing you're seeing over and over again is john smith or or jane doe 
And so yeah, I mean Trump, Trump with the red cap, and uh, you know, no, it's just it's just like perfect to jump into any biases that that people might have, um, uh, and to play on like particular emotions. Of course, the best thing I've seen—I don't know if you've you've read much about it—but is in Syria. The um, I always forget their name. The the Kurdish revolution in northern Syria yeah. essentially is a form of extreme direct democracy, sometimes referred to as anarchism. Um, and what they're doing is like, if you can do that in, if you can do that there, like how, how, how have we not evolved, uh, the versions of democracy that, that we operate on and they do it by having extreme local level conversations facilitated and, and those link up and scale up to form, to form national, national views. Uh, and that seems really interesting, I think, and they're doing that without technology, so and is that also the case? My understanding is that there there is a group in northern Syria that is being attacked by the Assad government and is also being attacked by the Turkish government. Is this related? Mm. No. Um. Yeah. That I think that is the same group we're talking about. Although I've I've I'll admit not having read much updated stuff recently because I think there's been a lot of changes yeah. with U.S. troops leaving and 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 various various bits. But but fundamentally, what what they had created certainly for a while, from what I can gather, is um, some hyper local versions of democracy, um, with with therefore hyper local solutions. And then that I think they're called commune levels. They start linking up and like uh, aligning decisions, so that you don't just have many, many di- very different versions of uh, of a government uh, at local levels. But they actually start to align and and like uh, consolidate decisions across across geographical areas. Um, and I think that's four million people. I could be totally wrong on that, but I think I think that's what I heard. Um, but but I think that that offers like a some some of the principles of the stuff I'm talking about are in that. There's real dialogue amongst people uh, in person. Um, it's constantly evolving and it's happening on an emergent basis rather than a top-down one. And perhaps most importantly, uh, you're not buying into you're not buying into personality branding, marketing, or all of the all of the elements that are easily tricking you when you're when you're voting normally. You know. If I ask my grandma about her policies, uh, about her beliefs, she says all sorts of incredibly wise and nuanced things. And then the moment I ask her who she's voting for, she'll say that she's voting for the same party she's always voted for. Uh, and that's 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 the problem that we need to get away from. And I can't see how how uh, how party based stuff is is going to solve that because fundamentally you're buying brands and personalities over actually understanding your own decisions and own beliefs in that. Yeah, that's that's a really memorable way to look at it. Again, your grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> well, in this case, it's not just because she's uh, it's not just because she's old. It's because her her, her contradictions are so clear. Mm. You know, she she she's incredibly wise and nuanced. But then, but then, just you know, she's stuck in her ways in other ways. So she'll she'll always vote for the same people. Okay, so I want to shift the conversation because you have all this unique work of, of democracy in the office, right? Democracy in private companies. And so what does that look like? Because it's not an environment that has this legacy of parties, so to speak, right? And so on the other hand, most companies are run extremely hierarchically, extremely top-down. There's, there's a whole reporting structure and 
at the end of the day, there's one person that's in charge that can ultimately get people uh, kicked out or not. And so, in what? So let's start with why would a company want to bring more democracy into their culture? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that this maybe goes back to the first question you asked me at the beginning as to like the entry point into this stuff. And I feel like, because I have this with companies a lot of the time, there's basically an effectiveness entry point, which is the the argument you, you like uh, reflected back at the beginning around a, a system, a system being too stupid to govern another yeah. system fundamentally. So there's an effectiveness um question and with companies what's happening there is that typically they're not uh innovating fast enough changing fast enough but the world around them is changing insanely quickly and so there's there's just a constant fear of of being one of the dinosaurs so that's one argument as to why but the second argument is is human um now you can argue it from other reasons you can argue you can still argue it as an effectiveness question which is that if you have loads of staff who fucking hate their jobs they're unlikely to be much good at it um, but but if you can have fully engaged workplaces, um, then then that's going to be wonderful for your output. Um, I think it's thirteen percent of people. This is a Gallup study. Are actively engaged at work. Thirteen. Wow. Nine so out like of ten people. Sixty percent. That's insane. Yeah, yeah. So well, so sixty percent are disengaged, which which I I brand as like indifferent. There's like apathy there. And then 27% are actively disengaged. So they, they, they just really hate their job. Um, and so like, that's not great. If, think of it, if you want to think of it in terms of time, 13% of time is useful, the rest <sighs> isn't. Or in terms of money spent on salary, 13% of time is useful, the rest isn't. So there's a, there's a huge effectiveness case to make for, from a company perspective. Um, but the uh, and then from a customer's point of view, you want you know as a customer, the person I speak to from a company, I want them to be empowered to make decisions to help me. I don't want them to have to go up slow hierarchies, uh, where you eventually speak to someone who knows nothing about the case that decides for you, and it takes ages. You want you want many people close to the comp- uh, customer with lots of information to make those decisions. So there's plenty of effectiveness cases, but then I can't just help come back to a, a almost humanitarian perspective which is this idea that you live in a democracy which i am like strongly i i i can't get to a, a definition of demo, uh, of democracy that i think we actually live in on the basis that voting every five years is 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 like not not great as a as a sort of a baseline for what democracy is as a criteria but we aspire but to work, live in a democracy right so right so if we just is, like north korea exactly yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, Democratic so People's if, if Republic. You, if you claim to, uh, or if you aspire to live in a democracy, what does that really mean? So I, I'm starting to develop this idea of like full stack democracy. So the, the most meta level is probably a government. You could argue it's a world government, but let's, let's just stick at a government. Um and uh, for that to be a democracy, it needs to ask people what it wants and it needs to move further in that direction. But at the moment, you don't ask them what they want. You ask them who they want, which is a very different question. So, so you still know nothing about what they want, um, which is absurd because companies like Facebook and Google know exactly what you want and will manipulate that to the nth degree for profit. Uh, and, and yet with our technology, we've not actually bothered bothered checking that. So that's the that's the most abstract level. But the one that 
uh, just under is probably companies, it's probably organizations. And that's to say that you spend, you know, most people spend most of their lives at work. Um, but at work, do you truly have freedom of expression? Like, are you, are you truly allowed to say, I want this? Um, or can you, you know, there's, there's plenty of examples, I'm sure, of people losing their jobs for wanting this or that. Do you get to, to uh, have some sort of say in when and where and how much and all these things? The, these are all dictated to you. Um, so there's a, a pretty easy argument to make that you're not free at work, uh, really. I'm not saying for everyone. Many, many of us are, uh, are incredibly lucky for that to not be the case. And there's a whole movement of companies that are run truly democratically. And I, I think they inspire a lot. Um, and then even within this company level, there's, there's many levels, there's organizations, the cooperative um, platform movement is really interesting, you know, examples of a, an Uber type app, but where the platform is owned by the drivers uh, is, a, is a very different version from the, the one where you extract as much cash as possible and send it to shareholders who, who haven't done any work and, um, and haven't, haven't been training the the robots to replace them, you know, just like uh, just like the drivers are doing. So companies are then one example. And then if you keep going down, there's schools, which is the, the case that you were brought up in a perfect simulation of autocracy. Hmm. You never you, you didn't get to, you know, in, in if I think of in England, uh, a kid is is told what to wear. They have a uniform when they go to school and um, you're told where to sit. You're told when to speak. Um, you're told you can't speak, you're even told when to pee, like you have to ask permission to pee. Um, this, is, this is like so far away from any definition of democracy. So how could you possibly grow up in that and then as an adult become A, really skilled in group conversation, which is fundamentally what, you know, one of the best tools of a, of a functioning democracy is, is great dialogue. You're definitely not going to be skilled in that. You're probably not going to be skilled in knowing what you want because you were never asked what you want. Um, so, so, so it's just not a question you've had to answer many times in the past anyway. Um, and yet, like, you know, I've, I've now um, been to, to democratic schools and seen that they, you know, they function incredibly well. And you have children who grow to be incredibly autonomous as well as compassionate towards one another. And so, so the... I've now lost the thread of your original question, but just this idea that, that democracy isn't just a, a vote that, that happens for someone. It really goes top to bottom and companies is, is one of the layers that that happens in. But fundamentally where I'm shifting towards is having, is seeing democracy as a far yeah. more holistic thing. You know, schools, companies and countries. I hear you talking... You know, first and foremost, you're talking about effectiveness, efficiency, you know, it's going to be better for the bottom line, the customers are going to be happier. And then I hear you making this other argument about the dignity of the participants. You know, you're saying our culture recognizes you as a full participant, not as a, you know, slave being told, go here, do this, do that. And the, the dignity part I think is, is pretty easy, pretty easy to, to buy into. The effectiveness part is a little bit, have you seen that firsthand? I mean, you're the one doing this firsthand. Do you see the transformative effects of um, bringing these processes and bringing these uh, new values into a company do transform their uh, financial metrics? 
Mm. I mean, I can't. I can't say that I've uh, that I've seen any like um, studies that like validate that. Um, well, at least the studies that I've seen that do validate that are biased in the first place because they're they're created by people who believe in that being the solution. So 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 I'd be hesitant to put a um, a like a, a final result uh, on that. Well, the the things you you hear said most, let's say, about self managed companies is that they're far less volatile. That's one thing you hear, mm. um, which I put down to not having a single point of failure. Mm. Um, and I put down to the fact that uh, because, some, because it now has emergent properties, many experiments can be going along at the same time, um, which, which leads to, to a system that's, that's far less volatile, whereas a, a top-down system is is bound to be um is bound to be volatile because there's there's some sort of like central power thing going on um so that's the main one that you hear longevity and volatility um being being improved um but i i can't say that i've heard a, a specific uh, example where like um but also wait it's, it's, it's also important to so the incentive structure changes totally as well if, particularly if i go to the the full extent of what a democratic company means, which is probably that its ownership model is also democratic to some degree. Your incentive is no longer... Well, first of all, if you're working in a company, the incentive is for, uh, for the shareholders to get rich quick. Um, if you are now a democratic participant in a company, it changes quite a lot, really, because you start to think about... Uh, the whole a lot more you start to think about having far less dips so you're probably not thinking about things quarterly but you start to be able to think about things in the long term you're likely to want to hang out a long a lot longer in a place so the the incentives financially really change from a quarter by quarter answering to the shareholders to a like is is the overall worth and and benefit for us financially as as a group of people that run this place is that is that going is that going up is that is that worthwhile so so the the effectiveness or the the motivation from an effectiveness point of view changes dramatically as well you know as an as an example i know one place where recently they they felt like they were they were doing pretty well financially this is a co yeah a co-owned place an employee owned place so they're just trying to see if they can earn the same money working less now that's it. That's an incentive that you would never, that a shareholder would never have. Yeah, that's right. So, do you think this applies that any company could be improved in this way? Like, you know, let's take the example of Apple. I believe Apple is still the largest, by market cap, the largest publicly traded company in the world. At one point, famously, it was you know ruled by this autocrat Steve Jobs. And at the same time, it, it produces you know, magic, it sells magic over and over and over again. Would you take the position that a company of that scale has the opportunity to transition to a more democratically managed organization? I mean, I, th- I just think that might just be so hypothetical because, yeah. um, because, because it's owned by, it's owned by shareholders. Yeah. So there's, there's a, so that they don't, you know, to those in power, equality feels like oppression. Uh, it's not. It's not. It's not really in their interest to change that. So, so I, I just can't see that ever being the case. It leads to a question as to whether uh, I definitely see that small groups 
that start democratically can scale into into uh, into larger democracies. Uh, and I see I see less evidence of big big companies that say in the and you know a hundred thousand odd transitioning to democracy. There's some reasonably successful um, examples, but not so many. And so for me, it becomes about when I'm working with a big organization, the the two the the things I start to ask myself is: Is there a local level? Just like I was explaining for countries later, you should go down to the local level. So can there be small teams that run democratically? The answer is there is definitely yes. So I have I've, I have many teams to move towards having constitutions that govern them as teams. And what that typically took is a manager to say, actually, I'd I'd like this to be I'd like this to be run by all of us. Um, and they'll create constitutions for their small group of people that up, and they update that constitution every other week um, to improve the way they work with each other. So you start to see it happen on that level and therefore the average of the company is, is overall more democratic and certainly from a participant's perspective, you now have a say in, in, your, in your day-to-day more than you did at first. Um, but as for an overhaul for the whole company... I mean, you end up with an irony that you have a, an autocratic decision to become democratic, yep. um, which is which is 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 very rare, really. So, what can the individual? What can the individual do? Right. So, how? You know, how many people out there are really asking these? Uh, more like fundamental systemic questions about what does democracy mean? What does healthier democracy look like? What do you encourage the people in your life and and your audience to to do to proactively move the move the ball forward? Yeah, this is a wonderful question because you want to you fundamentally want to live your life thinking of the biggest thing that you care about and then thinking of the smallest or the 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 smallest way that you, the biggest way that you can apply that so the biggest amount of influence you have you want to try and you want to try and do something about it right um, and so this question around democracy in general the biggest version of something is something you know like the system of a country how a country's governance model works is something that feels so far out of reach for almost all of us um, so the question becomes if that's your like circle of concern What's your what's your circle of influence when it comes to that topic? And I think there's a few different levels. I'm less and less. I'd say something that's changed for me personally is that I'm less and less, uh, despite despite democracy squared, I'm actually less and less uh, interested in talking about the big um, structural change to how a country is run, and more and more interested in in our day to day conversations and how they can change. So I think these layers that I described before of country, company, education, down to family become really interesting. So I can give examples of how I, how I run that on a, on a constant basis. At work, the main thing becomes to start learning about facilitation, I'd say, or at least at the team level, um, because most of us can influence the team level, I'd say, uh, in our day-to-day lives. So facilitation for me is a skill that we should all be learning, the ability to help a group to decide um, without without inserting opinion, you know the facilitator is there to guide the process of decision making, not to input into the content of the decision. Um, and that's something I think we can all learn about. Um, and there's there's plenty of organisational models to help us at the team level as well. 
Um, and then I think really interestingly, there's something about community, really learning to host good dialogue with one another, uh, you know, in the in the local cafe or, or whatever. But to, to have conversation to to have conversations with people where we genuinely listen to each other. So you see, you hear this whole movement at the moment. They call it the intellectual dark yeah. web. But this idea that rather than um, rather than strawmanning each other's opinions in order to win, we need to to learn to steel man to like f- fully understand and hear the other person's opinion um, to help them feel heard as well. This comes from nonviolent communication by Marshall Rosenberg. This idea of fully hearing another human's needs is something that we're we're terrible at, and we can learn to do that in all of our relationships. Uh, and that is a form of democracy to learn to truly hear your partner at home um, and understand what they're needing in a conversation is certainly something I have a, a long, long way to go before being before being good at. Um, so I think that's important. And then at the family level, just to give you a tiny example, we have a we're three. So it's me, my wife and our, and our son, he's, he's eight. We have a family constitution. Uh, and it's hard, you know, but we, we have like decisions around, um, we, it, it's like documented on the fridge and we have decisions around like who, who cooks what nights and who clears the table and who sets the table and how much screen time are you allowed? And we, we have like constant debate and, <laughs> and difficulty around these topics. But overall, I think it leads to, to a sense that there's, there's one team rather than a, a clear hierarchy, which of course there is to some degree with children because there's decisions they're not ready to, to make, you know. But, uh, but it leads us down all sorts of rabbit holes. Just to give you an example with, uh, with screen time, because that's, a, that's a, a juicy one. He wants, he wants loads of screen time. So we say, well, we're actually not in favour of that because we don't think it's good for you. So he's like, well, well isn't it? So, so we, we, look, we, we researched it together online and online there was we found this study that said an hour a day at his age is is a tops um and he he was just like okay that's really interesting all right so so he decided on that but then he said what yeah. about you and your screen time because you're on your phones all the time and and like obviously there's you know we're just flawed at that point because he's utterly correct um and so the decision he he proposed the decision for our constitution which is that we only uh use our screens in the other room, not in the living space. And so if we need to go and use it, we have to leave the room. We can't, can't be in there because then we ignore each other in favor of the screen. Uh, and so that, that was a decision that was added onto our family guidelines and we review it every few weeks. Um, and that's been really valuable. So democracy is something that you, you really can do like one-to-one or at home in small groups um, before thinking of changing the, the whole world. And I really think that if we all lived like that, full time, you know, whether it's at home or, or in companies, then the whole culture around democracy would be very different. Uh, and, and we just wouldn't put up with, with the way governance on a global level or in a, on a national level is run, because it would just feel so oppressive compared to the way you went to school or the way you were brought up at home or the way you live your personal life, you know. So I think I think democracy is a is a cultural shift. Actually, I think we're very far from understanding that. Yeah, I sort of hear you saying like change happens in your backyard. Yeah, for sure. I really I really believe that more and more. Or at least or at least change definitely happens in your back backyard. Uh, it it also needs to happen on a far bigger scale. So I'm not I'm not shying away from the fact that I think a a country that gets to vote on basically which team you're voting for every five years 
That, that is an absurd definition of democracy and that needs changing. Um, but we can all change the backyard now uh, and, and over time we need to change the whole thing too. Um, but, but taking control over what you can take control over is something that we kind of all have to do, I think, if you, if you believe in it. Okay, so shifting the conversation again, you wrote in, in your book about uh, the media and that the media and politicians in the, in the political arena are, are tightly woven and that they're really the same industry. So can you expand on that a little bit more? What, what do you mean about this? What? Yeah, I'm, as you asked that, I'm wondering if I've changed my opinion at all. I know at the time, certainly, what I was... What I was the, the main thing that I see and, and that we see quite often is in the mainstream media... You know, a Guardian reader reads the Guardian and uh, or whatever, a Times reader reads the Times and rarely do we read the other, the other perspective. Um, and, and of course, this plays tightly into our confirmation bias and we've since found out that filter bubbles online make that even, even worse. Um, but fundamentally, what I, what I was uh, sharing at the time is that that paper is trying to convince you to follow that paper's ideology. Um, so it has a left-leaning ideology or a right-leaning ideology, um, and and you pay them with cash um, because there's there's a clear profit incentive to to be the the confirmation bias has a has a profit motive behind it as well in a lot of uh, situations. Certainly for Facebook, the 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 decision to have algorithmic filter bubbles is is a profit motivated one. You spend more time on site, you get more ads, you give more data, and so the cycle continues. Um, and I see that being being more or less the same for a political party, that the, the, the motivation is for, is for you to be hearing what you want to hear in order to support that person, which is why you hear beautiful examples of politicians saying two totally contradictory things to two totally different audiences in order to, um, in order to, to sort of... Uh, Grow, grow their, grow the attention that they get from that audience. Um, so I think that was the initial, the initial point I, I was making there. I'm wondering if I still fully believe in that. I think the, the maybe, maybe my focus has just shifted from being angry at those sorts of problems to seeking new kinds of solutions, um, which again we can do, you know, individually by seeking all sorts of different information and trying to be better critical thinkers. Um, as well as I think changing the profit incentive behind journalism will also be really, really vital to this. There's no doubt that journalism is, is you know, at its most important perhaps right now. Uh, and we need good journalism and, and good journalism needs to have some sort of some sort of nuance um, in there. Um, so yeah, a bit of a ramble, but but as, but essentially, I'm I, I just at the moment I want to place more and more importance on diversity of opinion, um, diversity of participation as well. You know, I think it's really key that whether all sorts of organisations, but particularly when it comes to media and politics, that diversity be a, an effectiveness ingredient because diverse systems tend to be less volatile, and more resilient, particularly to ideological. Um, manipulation so you know if you have a group of of white straight men then then the outcomes that the 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 possible outcomes are probably quite narrow but if you have a diverse group in the room then then suddenly there's there's room for lots of different opinions 
um, and and that is a that is definitely an ingredient that I feel needs we need more of in both the political and and media landscapes. Yeah, I I think my intuition on this question is that there was a, this era of mass media, and just in the last. 10, 20 years, there's been this absolute explosion in the number of media sources, whether we're talking about millions of individual Twitter feeds or, or personal blogs or, or what have you. There's so many more independent journalists and, and uh, people documenting their world and commenting on their world. And so... I'm not sure if the business model has caught up whatsoever. I mean, I think it's it's hard to to do sustainable work on that. But the number of sources seems to have rapidly expanded by orders of magnitude. I mean, c- certain local newspapers are shutting down, and that's unfortunate. But the total number of sources out there is just exploding between you know everyone on Facebook, everyone on Instagram, everyone on Twitter, and so. Uh, my intuition is that that is sort of like an upstream change that is a leading indicator of how we'll see uh, politics change as well. That as we have this decentralization and narratives, we'll also start to see, uh, I hope, more decentralization in, in political leadership. Now, the, the caveat to that, sort of like you're identifying, are these massive platforms with their algorithms that are reinforcing these filter bubbles. And so it's not it's not totally clear how that plays out. I mean, yeah, so my Twitter feed is gonna look very different than your than your feed or, or your news feed is gonna look very different from my news feed. Um, it's not clear to me that Facebook's goal or Google's goal with the YouTube recommendation algorithm or, or what have you is necessarily to drive people more to the left or more to the right. There's a lot of people making claim, making, you know, drawing these conspiracy theories about that, but I don't personally see that much evidence. I mean, it seems like it's happening in every direction. I think it's, I think it's just money in it. Yeah. It it certainly seems that way. Ads and data. It certainly seems that way. I mean, I think the concern is about censorship, which when, when these platforms are, you know, can, control 90% of the market share there. That's a good question to be asking, but it seems like the censorship has a lot more to do with this person is a legal liability. And this person is a average, you know, is, is causing our advertisers to want to pull out less than I just simply don't like what this person is saying. Yeah. I mean, you have this, what's it called a power law dynamic, this idea that the more views something has, the more views something has. And, um, uh, and, you know, we've got limited amounts of time, so there's only so many things that can get so many views. Um, and typically it's the most extreme things that amplify the most. So I do think we need some sort of balancing systems. I guess I think I'm starting to think that platforms like Facebook have such an, such an impact and YouTube have such an impact that we need... Uh, I think we're starting... There's a public concern there, and so we're starting to need some sort of... Um, I don't know if participatory design is the way in or if there's some sort of like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm starting to see it feel a need for almost committees to have some sort of say, some sort of democratic uh, institution that has a say in how the newsfeed works. Um, but I certainly feel it's starting to 
to be that way. If money is the if money is the reason why you see the things that you see, that just that just seems like a disaster uh, for me. And I and I feel like this this like. You know, I, I used to be so inspired by this idea that we could all self... I mean, I, felt, I self-published my books. So just the idea that everyone could, could self-publish is just such an incredible thing. But then when, when Facebook decides who they amplify and who they don't, and when I say they decide, it's, I, know, I know it's the algorithm, but like there's, there's, only so, there's only so many times you can shake responsibility by saying it's the algorithm that's deciding... Um, I, I really feel like there is a public interest for for those 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 like self amplifying phenomena uh, to be to be kind of uh, decided not decided democratically but but I, I think there needs to be some representation um, by people deciding like how how we work this you know and it could just be that it's, I've suggested a few a few methods I think that I think design is an interesting place to start thinking about democracy. The design of platforms that is so i think we were doing this a bit with my vote but there's just this idea is that you can start your governance model as to how the platform is designed can include uh you know transparency and diversity are two things that can start to up the um the degree to which you're checking your platform will be uh will be in the public's interest uh, and then the second one is, I think, starting to use behavioral science in order to counter manipulation could be quite interesting. So we have all these examples of biases being exploited through platforms like like Facebook and Instagram or whatever. But we, we rarely look at how we can use nudging to help each other. One example could be that but if you were going to vote through some sort of liquid democracy platform or, or whatever in the future... Uh, you could you could add design features such as primers, uh, priming techniques before the vote in order to help you overcome your confirmation bias. So to help you start to consider uh, different opinions before the vote happens, you know. Um, so so yeah. Anyway, I, I think design is an interesting area to start thinking about democracy a, a lot more, particularly when you think of these mass these massive platforms. You know, but it comes down to the profit motive for me on them. Well, so actually, I wanted to have a brief conversation about the uh, about liquid democracy. Uh, well, or at least I'd, I'd prepared to talk about that because my my um, well, no, I just prepared to to talk about that as a it's a topic that I'm like not fully uh, I'm not clear on. So so the the way I'll put it, maybe this is a good way to 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 wrap this up is that my my sense is that. I really value so I really value the term liquid democracy as a metaphor for something that is constantly changing forever. Uh, like that that would be that would be why I'm interested in that term. Where so as a as a broad philosophical like uh, inquiry, I, I feel it's really interesting. When but then I've said some people use the term as a as a genuine like nuts and bolts arrival point it's a bit like agile was never a methodology it was a manifesto uh, with some broad principles to follow but it became a methodology so it became a dogma so the moment the verb becomes a noun or or something or the adjective becomes a noun uh, it becomes static and therefore it's now an irony in that sense and so with liquid democracy my sense is that it should be an adjective but when it's a noun it's dangerous 
Uh, and the main part that I've heard that I think is quite dangerous is this idea of swapping votes, uh, which, which comes up in, in a few different um, Im implementations of this. So I'm just curious as to your views on what liquid democracy is. Yeah. Uh, if it's a set of principles or practices kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's that's a that's a fascinating way to tee up the question. Um, I'm probably more on the guilty side of of the way you laid it out of uh, you know formalizing and um, you know putting down a hard definition. So I I agree with you in principle without a doubt that to me democracy as, as a larger picture is this constantly evolving thing. Uh, Abraham Lincoln has this great work about the unfinished work of democracy, and, th and that's mm. how I think about it. Um, to me, I I hear liquid democracy, and I'm not even sure if I'm if it's the right term for uh, this concept. But the thing that captured my imagination was the specific idea that every last person, uh, by right, in a real democracy, ought to be able to weigh in directly themselves on questions that face the community, up down just like mm. uh, elected legislator is right now. And at the same time, policy is really complicated. There are way too many questions for any one person to have a grasp on it. We live increasingly busy lives and our world is getting increasingly complicated. And so representation is an incredibly valuable thing. And so liquid democracy says not only can you always weigh in directly, but you have pre-assigned backup representatives, personal representatives, which can be your existing legislator if you want, or it can be a different politician that you trust more, you find more authentic, or it can be someone that's not traditionally associated with the political arena, like a journalist or author or famous mm. academic or professor, or it can be someone close to you in your life, like a family member. You know, It could be the person you would leave your keys with when you're going out of town to water your plants. And mm. so the point is that it's, it's this attempt to get at uh, much higher fidelity representation where your personal participation, to the extent you can be directly involved, that's a great thing. And all the times you can't be directly involved on a, one question, you have uh, already said ahead of time, these are the people that I want to be representing my personal vote. And so they actually get mm -hmm. my voting power. Or however they vote, I will automatically adopt their position by proxy. And it will be clearly shown that it is by proxy. Mm. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think, well, I think what you're saying is that, uh, I think you're saying both. So I, I was saying, I think liquid is, a, is an interesting, like broad philosophical direction rather than a set of practices. And I think what you're saying is that you agree with that but you do have a um you 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 think that the that particular example i gave of, of proxy voting you think that there's a lot of uh interesting inquiry to be put into that specific um application of the philosophy i'm talking about is yeah. that right well the i mean the powerful part of it is that it's it just creates choice it's all about giving individuals as much choice as possible and so to the extent that you're of the constitution that you need to weigh in directly on every last issue, a liquid democratic system gives you that right. 
to the extent that you want exactly what you get right now, you want to keep your exact same representative, a liquid democratic system gives you that right. And it's really a spectrum of everything in between as well. So those are the two extremes between like yeah. rule by the people and, and you rule can by change, experts. right? You can, you can pull your proxy. Exactly. It's always yeah. your vote. It's always your voice. You're always in control and just give people the flexibility. And you can even break it down to be more specific. So you can say on matters of foreign policy, this is who I think, or these group of people are who right. I think are really experts on matters of education policy. The, the foreign policy people aren't really knowledgeable about that subject. It's not their area of interest. There are these other people who are much more knowledgeable. Mm. Yeah, so I, I, do, I definitely see a lot of um, promise in that concept. I have a slight, like, I don't know if fear is quite the word, but I, I think the details start to matter uh, when it becomes an economy, particularly when it's like linked to, the, to genuine currencies on the blockchain. I think the... Uh, the degree to which the yeah just you know the maths of it start to matter and when if it starts incentivizing people towards certain behaviors rather than others i think it becomes dangerous but but again it's something to be split tested is i guess what i'm fundamentally saying i definitely think it could be really interesting well and and um yeah, applying it for, for blockchain governance is very interesting. And if you're familiar with the Tezos blockchain, they use this this sort of delegative model to and their intention is to use it for internal blockchain governance. I personally and, and our team are actually much more interested in using it in government. And so a number of us, uh, an increasing number of us are actually running for office in traditional legislative positions saying we're going to... If we get elected, it's not about us at all. We're getting elected to champion what we believe is this more accountable, more inclusive, more adaptive and responsive democratic model. And so our pledge as a candidate is that um, in office, we will vote on policy according to our local liquid majority. And so it's sort of like a one seat, as you put, you know, split test. It's a little one seat split test. Every other seat stays exactly the same, but this particular seat um, gets to adopt this uh, more, more what we believe, more accountable model, more representative yeah, so model. There's, there's this, um, and so because of that this... pledge, it is very important to get the specific details kind of ironed out. Yeah. Well, because so for me, there's this um, end goal. Well, let's say so let's say where we currently are is there's a person elected and they decide. That's right. Uh, They're local thief lord. They're the local governor of a million people. And so and then in the future, what I think we're both talking about is we want to get to a future where where all the people there, let's, let's go like for utopia where all the people there who, who want to decide. And then in between, we have the journey to take us there. And it strikes me that um, what we're talking about is a journey towards increased distribution. So, so if I use this metaphor for a second, that a server system, uh, you know, if it has a central, a central single point of failure, then it's uh, fragile. But if, the, if it is a distributed server system, then it's uh, more resilient. But that, uh, that is untrue to an extent because if I learned, if all of the systems in that distributed system are the same, if I hack one, I can hack them all. 
because uh, I've got it's the same key to all the doors, right? And what happens, I think, the fear for me is that as we move towards an, if we try, if we manage to move to this increasingly distributed system that you and I are starting to talk about here, in between you have a you have a situation where some people are starting to weigh in on your decision. So you've been elected. You've uh, your pledge is that you'll ask the people on every topic, and a hundred people answer. But those hundred people. Uh, might all be from one uh, one Definitely. ideology. They yeah, might all be, be heavily biased. They might all be left leaning. Yeah. Exactly. And so what we lack there is diversity, which is that that second principle. That if a service system is distributed and all the hardware and all the software in the service system is different, a hacker won't be able to hack all the whole system. He won't be able to compromise the whole system in one go uh, because of that resilience. And so what we need, I think, and I, I, I'm unsure how to do that is let's say 100 people weigh in on your decision that you're, you're pledging to, to follow um, in your elected position, how do we ensure that that 100 people is representative in of itself, that it represents all the different communities and different... Even you get down to neurodiversity, how do you make sure introverts and extroverts are in there, young people and old, black and white? So not just demographic, but also... Um, also, also, yeah, perhaps neurological or cultural or socioeconomic, whatever. Uh, and that's a question I've not answered yet. Certainly. Because we're in that in-between phase. Yeah. Well, again, I mean, the, the first premise is, again, start with what we have right now. Right now we have one single decision maker. At the end of the day, they're making all the, all the up-down decisions. And so right now we have this extreme singleton for that position, Right. And so I think what you're suggesting is that the hundred people that are weighing in might have the appearance of being more community involvement, but in fact, they actually aren't diverse at all. And they're, they're practically equal in their ideology, just like that single, that one single person, if they had just gotten elected would have been right. So then the, the next, so Without it, I guess I'm just trying to lay it out, set it out as saying that our current system of 500 Congress people on behalf of 300 million doesn't include a lot of diversity. Now they no agree because they all so so I think the argument you're making is that it's um, you can't get much worse than one person from one filter bubble making all decisions. But with a caveat, because they do claim to say, oh, I'm listening to all these constituencies. I mean, they say implicitly, you know, reach out to me, contact me. I want to hear. Yeah, from yeah, you. yeah. The problem that I personally. Well, there's an incentive on their side, which is that they want to get reelected. Right. And that forces some degree of uh, some degree of at least perceived representation. But again, it's debatable as to how how true that is and how much it smokes and mirrors and the we call this a liquid candidate the person that ran for office to to represent the liquid system the liquid candidate also wants to be reelected in theory right um i think the difference that the issue that i take with the feedback the way in which uh the community tries to make their voices heard on, on current issues is that the entire process is incredibly opaque the the representative says, call me, call my office, write me a letter, send me an email. But nobody can see that. And so when I have, have 
felt very strongly about particular issues and wanted to reach out, I'll do it and I won't get any response. It feels like my message is going mm. into a black hole. Yeah, yeah, but this goes down to the culture of listening. It's exactly. In, it, we institutionally don't listen. But, I mean, I, I, I have some sympathy for, for these legislators. You know, I've, I've been working on this for a while, and I've gotten to know some of them to different degrees and, and just all the, the players at stake. And there's just so many people we're talking about here. So my, my local city representatives have 80,000 constituents each. My state representatives have 500,000 constituents each. And my federal representatives have nearly a million. And so it's, you know, just the math, the numbers don't work out. It's absurd to pretend that they can have a one-on-one conversation with every constituent. So in any case, just to get back to it, the, the first premise is just that we're trying to bring this deliberation, bring all these different uh, perspectives and communities it out into the open and make it a much more transparent process so that we can see, you know, where different people fall on this. The other issue is that, or I mean, the other point to keep in mind is that because of the nature of the proxying, it's not like we're asking every single last person to s- devote a massive amount of time to, to getting on board. We've, we've set up a system al- already. So we've been building all the technology to make this easy and free and everything. And we've already set up a system where you can simply send a text message. You write the word liquid space and then a, a custom username to a to one text message, to one phone number. And it writes back to you, thanks for getting started with liquid. Uh, click here to verify your identity to prove you're an actual registered voter. And after you go through those steps, you have assigned that person as your personal representative, as, as one of your proxies. And so what that means is, if we have this system, this hypothetical problem like you're describing where there's 100 people dominating and the other 99% of the community is left out, there's a very clear incentive and there's a very clear path for leaders in that 99% to go around and say, hey, you know, our, our representative is, is totally failing us, is totally falling down. We take the 60 seconds to let me represent you on these issues mm. and rebalance that mm. number out. Mm. Yeah, I guess I guess what what's important then is that become that becomes an active um, an active like a strategy or practice. Let's say an active practice uh, that we seek diversity. So I, I feel like there's and I, I feel what's interesting about this is I think it's probably quite easily measured that um, like if you think of two of an X and Y axes, the, the one of them being distribution. So it, it literally quantity of people who are weighing in on your decision yep. um, by diversity. So like um, that will be like uh, you, you need some sort of um, set of coefficients or something yeah. to create that. But essentially how different are people in this group? And you can seek that diversity. Um, seeking distribution is, is perhaps more of a straightforward. It's like eyeballs and clicks. That seeking diversity is a second measure to have, but it's it's totally possible to seek that that measure, and it's possible to know how well you're doing on it, and it's possible to be totally transparent about it. Um, and for me, that's probably fractal as well. It means the organisation that starts, so this is the legislator and and their team, probably needs to be diverse in the first place. Um, then there's then there's extra approaches. So um, so for instance, with my vote, we were talking at one point about when we share. If we, uh, if you have a voiceover, 
Um, also, for instance, with the, to give my vote, just not not so much my vote, but the 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 approach that that I was working on with them at one point was that when you share information about a policy, uh, not everyone wants to read that much, so you therefore need to have uh, different versions. So you might have an audio and a video version of that information because more people might be likely to read. Then the audio version. If it's like a, a white English guy with a posh voice, then you're, then you're going to appeal to certain type of people very naturally uh, and probably going to annoy a load of other people very naturally. So then you need to have uh, the, the system running in such a way that uh, it's randomizing the voiceover that you're getting and there's a, ve there's a variety of different voiceovers that you get for that, for that information. You know? mm -hmm. So you might have a, the, the, the white strike guy reading your video, but someone else got, got someone totally different reading theirs, etc., etc. And then there's where you reach that information out to. So you need to actively think of all the bubbles that you're not a part of or that exist, and you need to go and try and burst each one uh, and act, act, actively seek diversity uh, in that sense. And, and in that sense, I think this is probably, probably quite straightforward actually but it just is something that needs to be measured and the thing I think I'm in favour of you were talking a lot about transparency I'm in favour of us measuring the degree to we, which we are achieving difference uh, and transparently documenting that so uh, uh, you know it might, it might be that you're open about how diverse your team is but also your listenership uh, Etc. Etc. So you're, what you need to come back and try and prove to people is I'm getting loads of different viewpoints here. I'm not. I'm not getting a hundred people from one camp. And if you do that transparently, hopefully you're accountable to that diversity ratio increasing and increasing over time. You know. So I think it needs to be a set KPI in a in a way for that team. Does that make sense? Yeah, I totally. Muddy, no, muddy things. Or? No, it makes perfect sense. It's it's. Uh, I love it. I. I a lot of people bring up this concern that you're raising. I don't think any of them have proposed a really solid solution, and I think you have. So it could be, for instance, that you, you have, as simple as this, when you, on your system, when there's the number of people who weighed in on a pledge, maybe there's also like the, the <laughs> this is a bit corny, but maybe there's also like the rainbow uh, coefficient, you know? Uh, if it's a if it's a one on ten, it means this is an absolutely non-representative uh, diversity achievement. Uh, and if it's a ten on ten, it means like really like some very lots of very very different people have have weighed in on this. And distribution times diversity for me is is what representation will more or less be about. So just to, just to really try to sush out the details, because obviously you, you've thought about this a lot, what are the particular um, like parameters? What are the particular, I think you used the word coefficients, but, but by what sort of factors would you personally be interested in measuring diversity? So we could talk about, I mean, the easy one is age, uh, registered political party, geography we don't have data right now about socioeconomic level but the data is out there yeah you get you can get quite academic on this i think there's there's um it, it's for me gonna work in levels of i'm sure there's some shortcuts but for me it's gonna work broadly in in most in most abstract and most specific 
levels of data. So like, so like, me, like uh, male, female, or non-binary being one. Um, and it's important to be incredibly like I, I in my like brief research into this the the it's important to be incredibly updated on on how to measure diversity when you come to demographics and gender and race and ethnicity um, that that in itself is an education I've I've found uh, I, I'm constantly stumbling on uh, and that's okay I'm like uh, trying trying to not fall prey to political correctness on it all the time. Um, but that becomes one way. Then you start getting, like you say, into the real nitty gritty. I'm sure there's some academics who know some shortcuts into knowing some stuff about people. I wouldn't be surprised if you had some mad piece of study that said, like, you know, people who buy kale vote Democrat and people who buy steak vote Republican or like, you know, <laughs> you know, whatever. And therefore, can you get the data on kale and steak eaters on your on your? <laughs> I don't know, but I'm sure there's some method. There is an algorithm that based on your make, year and color of your car can predict how you would vote with 87 percent accuracy. Right. OK, so that stuff exists. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's lots of different levels. I've, I've been thinking about it. Um, without without all of that knowledge and my my basic one has been like on all the demographic ones possible can i go there so like um race ethnicity gender biological sex education uh socioeconomic uh etc etc the ones you, you can probably probably expect um then the the next level starts to go somehow i don't know if ideology is the right way uh, to think about this, but but perhaps it's useful. Uh, I don't know the degree to which left and right are useful, but it might be some something on a values basis. Um, you know, when we stereotype the the political binaries, we tend to stereotype them in terms of how much do you think of yourself or others, how much do you think of the past or the future, um, and I'm sure there's I'm sure there's all sorts of ways to cut that. Uh, you know, to find out who who is a, a future versus a past thinker, uh, uh, I'm sure I'm sure there's always do it. You could even get it down to personality tests to the degree yeah, that Myers I don't Briggs. know to the. De- yeah, then I start to think like, why not include um, star signs whilst you're at it? Yeah. So uh, I'm never I'm ne- I'm never quite sure. Um, but what I think is probably the the more variables in there, the better. You've got to start somewhere. So maybe demographics is a simple p- place to start. Um, but then you need to you need to start like just adding more and more variables into into this mix, um, and then you start to have a conversation about how you're attributing different weights against different variables, um, and this is why this conversation itself needs to be transparent. So that that calculation of diversity, um, my 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 gut feeling is that that needs to be transparent so that we can conti- so that we can be poked at. And so that people can say, yeah. wait a minute, you're, you're not thinking of this, you're not thinking of that, and we can keep improving. However, there's an argument to say that if it's transparent, it's transparent to hacking as well. And so someone knows that if they just get loads of, um, if they just get loads of kale eaters to vote on this policy, then they're going to get their way and that's going to be great. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure there's fringe examples where that's possible, but, but we're, pretty far, we're pretty far off that, I'd say. Yeah, I think the, the concern I'd have is, is all of this data self-reported. Because if we're just asking people, 
do you prefer kale versus steak? Yes, start to agreed. Well, so that's why you need system. to find out, like, uh, yes, exactly. And I, I don't know what are the measurable ways that aren't invasive of finding out uh, that stuff. I, I totally agree. Yeah. Like, you know, how can you find out that someone buys kale without asking them and without having their bank statements? That's right. I want neither of those extremes. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Good luck. Good luck on that, mate. Well, the interesting <laughs> thing is, it's it's there's a certain similarity to Cambridge Analytica psychographic profiling, but for the exact opposite, prerogative. Yeah. It's it's can we identify as much information about these people, but not in order to change their mind, but so that we can uh, so we can so we can simply know what they want. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, 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 and it's the same. You, you know, the, that constant thing of uh, of the, the technology in itself isn't bad, uh, which is, it? I think, like an interesting debate in of itself. But you have that with the biases question. So far, I've only seen biases. I've seen biases. Knowledge of biases used to mainly manipulate and addict people or get them to buy shit they don't need. Or vote for people they they don't know a thing about exactly. Or I've seen it. You see it in the corporate world. Like maybe this is slightly less harmful um, to make better decisions. Um, but I see I see understanding biases as a form of personal development. Like I can knowing that my confirmation bias is like this is is extreme. For instance, like that definitely makes me a worse person. Like it definitely means I listen to other perspectives less. It means that I'm probably more divisive in relationships. Um, it mean you know it means all sorts of things. So you start to think, well, how can I use this knowledge of biases for good and do so ethically? Um, so so nudging people towards political decisions doesn't feel right, but nudging people to counter certain biases for me feels feels potentially useful. Certainly, if it's done transparently, so that we can have a debate about whether this is right or wrong. So that's why there's this famous um, this famous HSBC advert, so the, the bank where they have um, the back of a, a shaved head, right? And it has three pictures of that, the same shaved head replicated three times. And on one, it says style. On one, it says soldier. And on one, it says survivor. Mm. And you just have this like, whoa, it's a really powerful image. And you're like, fuck, okay. I just totally projected onto the, onto the shaved head. You know, I meditate a lot. So I saw, I saw a monk. Um, and, I, uh, and, I, and I ran a test recently. I showed that shaved head at a conference at a tech at a tech thing and they said oh it's jeff bezos yeah but of course because they've come in through the lens that they're into technology so what i was thinking is you know before you go and make your decision rather than being triggered by the last like thing feed uh, thing you saw in your social feed that's that's created by the confirmation bias can you be given the shaved head as well as a load of other things uh, that's just just sufficient to make you reconsider that there's a different perspective on the topic that you're about to vote on. Yeah. Um, another one is, um, is mindfulness as a tool is amazing for helping you sort of put your, your prefrontal cortex into action and, and not, not be so um, reactive to, to the limbic system. So is there a way that uh, there are apps now, you know, like mindfulness apps where you, when you follow your thumb on the moving bubble for a certain period of time, you find yourself being less reactive. Mm. So you know when, when your vote is low... Uh, pause oh, is the name of I that. So I, so, so I was thinking when you go and vote before the vote, is there just a 10 second or a five second loading system where you, you're following the bubble on the screen and that's just enough for you neurologically to maybe start to bypass some of your biases? I don't yeah. know. But I, I think there's a way of applying 
this knowledge to the total contradiction of the way it's currently being being done as per your example with with Cambridge Analytica you know yeah there was a there was an interesting study about um, if you put subjects in a room with a bad odor they would vote for more conservative options <laughs> that's interesting yeah yeah so I wonder you know if you're you're thinking I don't know your I know you, you guys are thinking of uh, a lot of this being screen based um, or the, a lot of the solutions is that is there a sound or a or a way that doesn't make people vote this or that but quite the opposite makes people put their like uh, executive functions into gear uh, and not necessarily fall prey to the last social bias that they that they got hooked by you know well and the other thing is is the actual client itself is open source and we it would be great if there was a diversity of different approaches here so you know you have your mindful voter and you also have your efficient voter if you will yeah 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 totally your totally democracy I mean, yeah 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 there'll, there'll be there'll be no end to the the ways this can be tested and, and broken down right okay so uh thank you again john and where can people find out more about your work website social media where should yeah. you go your book yeah, less and less on social media. I'm definitely trying to trying to leave that that uh, world. There's too many too many incentives to make me a bad human being on there. So um, my my website and newsletter are probably the the best place. Website's johnbarnes.me. That's j o n b a r n e s dot me. Um, forward slash newsletter for that. You can find my books on there. Democracy Squared is probably the one we've mainly spoken about. I've also touched a bit on some of the content from Tech Monopolies, which is about addictive design. Um, and forward slash podcast for, for other discussions on, on that as well. Love it. Great. Thanks so much, man. This was Thank fun you. talking. Yeah, lots of fun.